Individuals feel out of place in a church such as faith that has a culture that really values marriage and family. And I will be the first to admit that Faith E Free has much to learn, both biblically and practically, about how to value and how to uh, encourage and how to, to um, just practically reach out to singles in our midst. And so I trust that today's message will be a good first step in that direction. I want to begin up front with a, a definition. And so biblically speaking, a single person is someone who is not married and who is sexually abstinent. Okay, so the scriptures that talk to singles in the body of Christ, uh, the, the, the presupposition there or the premise there is that they are not sexually active. And the term single encompasses people from a wide variety of different circumstances. So it would be the person who's never been married, whether that person is 18 years old or elderly. It would include the person who is formerly married but now divorced. It would include the person whose spouse has passed away. It would include the single parent who is raising kids. It would include the person who is very content being unmarried and really never plans to be married. It would also include the single who has a desire to be married to the right person someday. And so it's a wide variety of circumstances. And we won't obviously address each of those circumstances today, but I trust that what's said uh, will be helpful and that you can apply it to the specific circumstances that you might be facing. Well, I hope it's not, uh, you don't find it too strange that the, f- the first point in this sermon on singleness has to do with marriage. Is that ironic? Uh, but uh, we feel like this will set the context for understanding singleness. Here's, the, here's the, the statement. The household of God is permanent and eternal, whereas marriage is a temporal or a time-bound relationship. In several different ways, the New Testament makes clear that our spiritual relationships in the household of God actually outlast our relationships in our biological human families. Uh, In other words, the church, big C, will last throughout eternity. Our families will not, at least not the way that we know them. And so, if we don't understand this, or if we don't actually believe it, if we say, yeah, yeah, whatever, if we don't really believe it, our thinking about marriage and about singleness will be distorted in all sorts of different ways. Matthew 22 is an interesting text. We have a couple of different groups coming to Jesus, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were basically like two denominations within the Jewish faith. But they came to Jesus and they tried to trip him up and trap him with some questions. The Sadducees came to Jesus with this elaborate hypothetical situation. They say, let's say that a man or woman are married and the man dies. And so the next of kin, this man's brother, marries this woman and, well, the man dies and they haven't had kids yet. And this, this man's brother, next brother, marries this woman. He dies without leaving an heir. This happens to six of his brothers. And so they each die without providing an heir. And so they lay out this scenario. Then they try to entrap Jesus with this question. And they thought this was the perfect gotcha question. In the resurrection, therefore, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They thought that was just a a silly idea. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. 
Well, Jesus didn't even accept the premise of the question. He says, but Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus is not saying that humans become angels, okay? We, we, we remain human. We become fully human probably for the first time. But he says that believers are like angels in heaven in one very specific way. We are neither married nor given in marriage. In other words, marriage in this life basically foreshadows our relationship with Jesus in the next. In, Matthew, in uh, Revelation 19, uh, the, the, our reunion with Jesus is described as the marriage, uh, the marriage feast or the marriage supper of the Lamb. The church is called the Bride of Christ. And so being the Bride of Christ will gloriously overwhelm all human relationships, including marriage. And the impression you get is that nobody's disappointed, okay? When, you, when we fully become the Bride of Christ, nobody's going to be disappointed, Another, another thread in the New Testament, the new covenant is called, uh, the new covenant in Christ's blood is called an eternal covenant in Hebrews 13. By contrast, when two people get married, they typically make vows and they promise to be faithful to one another how long? Until you are parted by death. So you're not saying, I'm going to be married to you for eternity. And you're saying, that's good news. You're saying, I'm going, to, I'm going to be faithful to you until we're parted by death. Okay? And so, uh, biblically, the new covenant in Christ's blood, it's the first, therefore, the primary covenant in a person's life. The marriage covenant, if you get married, is the second and therefore a secondary covenant in your life. And that reality uh, should really color the way we think about family, whether you're married or single. It doesn't minimize the importance of family relationships. If you get married to somebody, you're going to be the most influential person in your spouse's wife for good or for bad. You just will. You'll be the most important person on the planet in that sense. But it does change we think, the way we think about our families. Uh, on one occasion, it's recorded in Matthew 12, Jesus' mom and his brother showed up and they wanted to talk to him. He was teaching his disciples, and uh, so they interrupted him and said, Jesus, your mom, your brother are outside. And here's Jesus' response. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, this had to be a dramatic moment, stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven he is my brother and sister and mother. And so Jesus saw his spiritual family as primary over his biological family. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul referred to the church as the household of God. It is a, it is a family, the church. It's a spiritual family. He said, I'm writing you this letter so you'll know how to conduct yourself in the household of God. And he goes on to describe all these relationships, how you treat an older man or an older woman, a younger man, a younger woman. Uh, he talked about how widows are supposed, supposed to be cared for. And so it's very much a family, and it's a, it's a, it's a permanent family. And so whether you are single or whether you are married, your relationships in the body of Christ will outlast your relationships in your biological family. 
Now, what we pray for and what we hope is that there's overlap, that our biological family also are part of our spiritual family, but it's our spiritual family that, w- that will last for eternity. And one implication is that we, and there's a lot, but for our purposes today, one implication is that we need to value and include and encourage everybody in the body of Christ, regardless of their marital status, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their socioeconomic status, we must value everybody in the body of Christ. And so again, for our purposes today, those of us who are married, we have to value those who are single. We must never make singles feel like they're second class in the church, in the body of Christ. And there's, we all have blind spots. I think back, and I've thought a lot this week about myself and about my experience. I've said so many awkward, insensitive things over the years. I'm sorry. I just, I just have, and, and I need to learn. We need to learn. We need to understand uh, what, what uh, the, the joys and the sorrows of singles. We need to understand the advantages and the disadvantages of being single in a church like Faithy Free and in the body of Christ in general. And so we need to learn, we need to be teachable our entire lives. And so how should we think about singleness? Well, first and foremost, we need to think biblically. The Bible is sufficient. The Bible is, is beautiful in what it teaches about singleness. And the first thing we would say is that singleness, like marriage, is a gift, and this is taught in a couple of different places. First uh, Corinthians 7 is one of the primary ones. But Paul is teaching in this chapter about the importance of remaining in the situation in which you find yourself when you're converted, when you are called is what he says. And uh, that's true whether, whether he's, he's referring to your status in society, your Jewishness or the lack thereof, or whether he's talking about your marital status. And part of the reasoning involved their effectiveness in influencing people for Christ. When you come to Christ, you have a network of relationships. And if you abandon those relationships, your ability to influence is compromised. And so Paul's encouragement was stay in these relationships, stay in these these webs of influence. After discussing sexuality and marriage in verses 1 through 6, Paul makes an interesting comment in verse 7. He says, yet... I wish that all men were even as I myself am. If you read the context, Paul is saying, I wish all of you were single. I wish all of you were unmarried. But he acknowledges that's not the will of God. He says, however, each man, and he's going to explain why he wanted that later. It may sound like a strange thing, but we'll, we'll talk about it later. But he, he, he acknowledges, however, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. And so Paul speaks, and he's talking about singleness or marriage. And so Paul speaks of singleness and marriage as gifts from God. And when he refers to singleness as a gift, I don't think he's saying that God gives some of you unmarried people this ability to thrive in singleness, and this ability to, to remain single and abstinent. I don't think he's saying that. He's saying that if you're single, your singleness is a gift. And if you are married, your marriage is a gift. 
no matter how hard it is, no matter how, uh, uh, how, how, no matter your lack of contentment. So sometimes they say marriage is, marriage, sometimes, not always, marriage is like the fly on the window. Those on the inside want out, those on the outside want in. Paul is saying, if you're single, that's your gift from God. And God only gives good gifts, right? If you're married, that is God's gift to you. He only gives good gifts. And so seeing one's singleness as a good gift from God will correct all sorts of distorted thinking. There's great freedom in being able to say from the heart, my singleness is a gift of God. I don't know how long, but for this season of my life, it is a good gift of God. It is a gift God has given to me. And so seeing singleness as a gift from God can drive away thoughts such as, God has forgotten me. I am undesirable. Uh, God doesn't really answer my prayers. To the contrary, Paul writes that one reason for viewing singleness as a gift is because, and here's our second point about singleness, is that singleness has the potential to provide undistracted devotion to the Lord. Some of Paul's comments in this chapter, if you read it, it seemed based on some unique circumstances. Paul talked about because of this present distress, which may have been a famine, we don't really know, because of this present distress, it's good for a man to remain as he is. But whatever the case, uh, some of his other comments are just, they're general, general observations and insights that are always relevant. I want to read uh, verses 32 and following. Paul writes, But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord." Paul obviously had a high view of marriage. I mean, he wrote Ephesians 5, and so he had a high view of marriage. But his main point here is a pragmatic one. He also had a high view of singleness. Uh, A married person has family responsibilities that a single person does not. When you get married, your life becomes more complicated. When you have kids, your life becomes much more complicated. And so if you don't have the responsibilities associated associated with being a spouse or being a parent, there's potential for undistracted devotion to the Lord. A friend this week pointed out that that's not necessarily the case. Single people, <clears throat> single people and married people can both squander their lives by watching TV all week long, okay? So there's no guarantees. But there's the potential, the potential, if you are seeking first God's kingdom and God's righteousness, to have this single-minded devotion to the Lord that you might not otherwise be able to have in the context of marriage and family. I talked to a, a young man this past week who pointed out that when he was single in his mid to late 20s, he had much more discretionary time. There was a need, sure, he didn't have to ask anybody, he just went off and met that need, and he did all week long, I mean, just amazing sacrifice. Uh, the, he found out about a financial need, he had money in his bank account, sure, I will give that money. He said, now that I'm married, 
uh, I don't quite have that latitude that I did. Legitimately, appropriately, he now has more, more things to consider. He also pointed out that there's no way Paul would have done the things he did, lived the life he did, where he married. And so the challenge for singles is to receive singleness as a gift from God and to pursue God in ways that might not otherwise be possible. And so, again, I would just say this, and I would say this kindly, but, it, but if, if you are not seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, all of this may sound like some rather lame attempt to make single people feel better about not being married. But if you are seeking first his kingdom, there are these opportunities. There are these real opportunities that exist for you, given some of the, the lack of restraints that you have by not having a wife husband and kids. Well, we've asked Suzanne Renberg, I should have told you this, I'm only teaching 15 minutes. Suzanne Renberg is going to come up and she's going to share her experience uh, of singleness. Uh, she is now married uh, to her husband, Walter. They've got a daughter, Janie. They're longtime members of faith. And Suzanne is also the executive director of Relate 360, which is a local nonprofit empowering the next generation to live with intention to love with integrity, and to experience wholesome relationships. So, Suzanne, thanks for sharing. Thank you, Steve. Good morning. As someone who did not get married until just before I turned 40, I have spent the majority of my life as a single adult. At 18, I discovered the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 7, which talk about the value of singleness in serving God. I took those scriptures to heart and told God that I was surrendering my relationship status to him. I wanted to be married someday, but only if I could fulfill his purposes for my life better married than I could single. That's kind of a crazy prayer. But not only did it fit my rather intense personality, it fit the genuine call of God on my life. As a result, I felt a tremendous sense of purpose in my years as a single person. This season, however long it lasted, was not God punishing me by withholding a mate, but was part of his design to bring glory to himself through a surrendered life. I attended Bible college, spent a couple years on the mission field, was an associate pastor at a church for four years, and spent several years working for mission organizations. My best years as a single adult were within the missions context, both on the field and in mission organizations. Not only did I get to experience the front lines of international kingdom work, but I was treated with respect as a valuable member of the team and was never made to feel that I was somehow lacking as a person because I was not married. On the other hand, by far, the most challenging of those years as a single woman were the years I spent on staff at a church. For starters, the congregation viewed my singleness as something that was broken about me and needed to be fixed, obviously with marriage. My intellect, experience, skills, personality, and heart for God were all secondary to the fact that I wasn't married. Part of the reason for their behavior was the misguided belief that the highest calling especially for a woman, was to be married and have a family. Now, before you all start throwing things at me, 
Please know that I fully understand that the Bible clearly establishes the importance of marriage and families. I get it. But it also acknowledges, as Steve had says, the important role that single men and women play in God's overall plan. Example A, of course, is Jesus himself, not to mention the Apostle Paul and numerous other single men and women in Scripture and throughout church history whom God used mightily and continues to use for his kingdom purposes. As a result of their belief that my singleness needed to be fixed, I was subjected to this church's constant, uninvited matchmaking. There seemed to be a steady pressure to meet someone's brother, cousin, friend. This was accompanied with the total lack of discernment as to whether or not this guy and I had anything in common other than the fact that we were both single. A common opportunity presented to me was the matchmaker's belief that if I could just meet this brother, cousin, friend, he would certainly become a Christian and start attending church again. My favorite example of this is the family who had an uncle who would soon be re-entering normal society. And they felt having a good woman by his side with a strong moral compass would be very beneficial. That's a whole other level of missionary dating. <laughs> Overall, as you can understand, a church that self-appointed to the role of matchmaker created some very uncomfortable situations for me that became truly tiresome. Another thing that proved to be a tremendous burden during my single years was, sadly, sexual harassment. The coworkers who made passes at me were married, and their inconsistent behavior around me when their wives were absent seemed to indicate that in their minds, as a single woman, I was fair game. Their actions exposed the hypocrisy of their faith at every level. It also showed their total disrespect for me as a woman and a fellow worker, a phrase the Apostle Paul used to describe Priscilla, Phoebe, and Junia, among others, who worked beside him in the building of the New Testament church. Obviously, this made these working environments completely unsafe and eventually resulted in me leaving that denomination altogether. Those are just a few examples of the challenges that, at times, brought me to the point of despair and caused me to seriously question God's goodness in my singleness. There was more than one moment when I felt that getting married would solve a lot of problems. Through it all, one of the most important things that happened in those years, however, was that my faith became solidly built on my faithful God not on the faithfulness or lack thereof of the other fallible humans around me. God wanted me to understand his crazy love for me firsthand, not vicariously through others' experience or practice of faith. Those years as a single person were vital in building a deeply personal relationship with Jesus that, while certainly affected by others' choices, was ultimately not dependent on them. By the way, my husband Walter was also close to 40 when we got married in 2005, and he had a similar attitude about singleness as a gift. However, in the nine years he spent here as a single at Faithy Free, he recalls a much more positive experience. To those who welcomed him, thank you. Obviously, the importance we place on marriage and family is valid in the body of Christ. 
But in our rush to the altar, often in an anxiety-ridden race against sexual sin, which is understandable, we run right over a season of time that God very clearly states is a special opportunity, a gift, to serve without distraction and deepen our relationship with him. Singles need our support more than ever before. Not only are they marrying later than ever, but our cultural norms of living together before marriage and unfettered access to harmful and addictive pornography make being single today a wide path toward godlessness. The godly standards for purity in singleness are the same for all singles. Not only do heterosexual singles need tremendous support in pursuing a godly lifestyle, but our brothers and sisters who are same-sex attracted especially need our support. Our secular culture offers unlimited options to those who identify as gay. But as believers, God's word is clear that singles are to remain sexually pure outside of marriage. And the only kind of marriage that scripture talks about is between a man and a woman. This means that for those in the body of Christ who experience same-sex attraction, they may very well never marry. For these singles who believe that lifelong celibacy is what God asks of them, they in particular will need a safe community that is committed to standing alongside them in the unrelenting pursuit of Jesus. If we cannot offer that, then we are failing them. As a now married woman, I can affirm Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7 that marriage does indeed divide your time and attention. Understanding that makes me even more grateful for my years of singleness. It seems apparent that those who pursue God as singles continue pursuing and serving him in marriage, nurturing the seeds of faith that were sown in those fully dedicated years. As any married person will tell you, marriage is a gift, but it will also test you like nothing else can. And a solid pre-marriage faith is an invaluable boost in any relationship, especially a healthy marriage. My encouragement to us today as the body of Christ in Manhattan is to pursue loving our single brothers and sisters in Christ with a clear vision to the challenges they face as well as the unique freedom and opportunities that singleness provides in the pursuit of God. We must lead with an intention that supports them in fully embracing the work of God, the work God is doing in them and through them in this season, whether it is short or forever. Our single brothers and sisters must know that they are loved and valued members in the body of Christ with important roles to fill and that they will always belong here. Thank you.